What's up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today and enjoying day two of the NBA playoffs in the NBA bubble. But that is not what we're here to talk about. Uh, Shawan, you missed a week. Last week I was sick, but we're here for episode 175 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Let everybody know how you're doing, sir. Oh, busy as always. Actually, just got done working out, so made it just what? in time. You know damn well you weren't working out. What were you doing? Oh, I was running on the treadmill. I used to go like about an hour and then do like half an hour on the exercise bike. Look, man. Trying to set, you trying to set a good example for the kids, basically. You ain't got to come on the show and start lying. Y'all. You ain't never done that before. Don't don't start no new habit of coming on here telling, telling some type of story. All right? The fans ain't going to get behind you for that. Oh, man. Missed it. Missed you. Huh? You doing good? Say it again. I said, I missed, missed the rapier, sharp humor of one Rafael Garcia. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm uh, chilling, watching this game. Who do you think you want to win the playoffs this year? Uh, I figured it's between Lakers and Clippers. I think they got it. I, I want to say Lakers, but they got to get that three-point shooting thing fixed. You got you got to hit threes to win nowadays. You you got to hit some, and and they're just so so bad right now. But if they get the three point shooting fixed, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Lakers. Man, as as much as I agree with that, I want to see Portland win this series, but we know it's not gonna happen. Yeah, no, they can't play enough defense. They can score, but they can't stop. I mean, everybody who played them since they've been in bubble putting up career high number. I mean, Karis Levert dropped almost forty points on them. And I know he's a good player, but he ain't 40 points good. No, he ain't. Well, I mean, 40. Yeah, but it's, this, is, this has been a crazy season. I've, I've, I've been loving it. But we're not here to talk about basketball, even though we probably could do a whole show about basketball because there's plenty of, of MMA action for us to discuss. But before we do that, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. You can find... All of the content from MMA Ratings starting at MMARatings.net. You can check us out there. And you can also subscribe to all of our social media channels, MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also catch us on YouTube at MMA Ratings. We have a Spotify and Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, and a Breaker profiles as well for our podcast, which is this one on Tuesdays and the pro wrestling one I do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, one of the days throughout the week. But I'll also do that later on in the week. But all of those names are also MMA ratings. Myself, you can catch me at rgarcia underscore sports. Schwan Humes, you can catch me at Black Jordan Breen. So be sure to check us all out to see what type of foolishness we're talking about, ranting and raving every day of the week. So let's go ahead and jump into the Schwan and talk about UFC 252, where Stipe or excuse me, defeats Daniel Cormier via unanimous decision to keep the heavyweight title around his waist and end the trilogy uh, with two wins to one over Cormier. And what I want to talk about with Stipe is the strategy adjustments that he made. And uh, this was probably the biggest talking point for me coming into this week's, this last weekend's fight, because you saw adjustments from both fighters from each fight, and I think that's what probably was what is most interesting to me about these fights too, that they got progressively longer each time they fought. They fought 2018, 2019, and now 2020. 
And we saw key strategy adjustments from Stipe this time around that really played into his victory, such as whenever he was getting into the clinch, he was using his his left hand to control uh, Cormier's right hand because he know he knew that that right hand, overhand right coming out of the clinch is what blew his, blew his face off in the first fight and also hurt him in the second fight as well. He got dropped by it too. This fight at the end of the first round, so he was really doing a good job of checking that hand. But Schwan, talk about that adjustment and what other strategy adjustments you saw from uh, Stipe in this five round fight. Uh, that was the biggest one. I think I think DC was used to getting those clinches and getting them easy, and, and he would use them for rest spots um, because one, Stipe was accepting the position, so then DC could essentially hold him up against the cage or tie him up in center cage and either just rest or he could wear on Stipe, or he could just land land bombs on him. So it was it was a position that gave him multiple options in what he wanted to do against Stipe. Slow the pace, wear him down, or punish him. And Stipe, making that less of a factor, took probably, I don't want to say like, I don't want to say it took like 50%, but probably somewhere at 25-30% of Daniel's meaningful offense was taken away when he essentially neutralized that position. The... Uh, the big thing about Stipe is, in my opinion, and the, the, the biggest secret, the biggest advantage he had is striking. Daniel Cormier has a very functional brand of striking, not very defensively sound, not very offensively structured. The footwork's not all there. The combination punching isn't often there. He, can, he headhunts a lot. Um, really, Stipe had the footwork, the length, and the offensive skill set to really stay at range and kind of take Daniel apart with kicks to the leg, kicks to the body, and a long jab, long jab and long right hand and some feints. And with footwork, he should be able to exit on inner angles, exit on angles and circle around Cormier. But Cormier's athleticism and the fact that Cormier won't be scared off by big shots, he'll, st- he'll still come forward, is essentially what threw, what, what threw Steve A's initial game plan off. Because he, he wants to use the range. He wants to use the striking. Because once you get it at range, technically speaking, there's not much there's not much Daniel does better than Stipe, but Daniel is so quick that he gets into the pocket with Stipe and he's throwing fast and Stipe can't react to it. That's why in the second fight you saw the your feet are moving so slow I can't get out of the way. It's not that he it's not that he couldn't get out of the way. It's just Daniel was getting into positions that he didn't want him to get into and he's getting into so getting into them so fast. And then Daniel would he'd instantly walk into those clinches and be able to bully Stipe or just outright beat him up in those clinches. Now, what Stipe was doing by reversing and tying up the clinches and getting an advantageous position, even if Daniel started ramping up the volume where he's hitting five, six, seven, eight shots, then Stipe, and he went into that clinch to kind of take over, Stipe could reverse it and then punish Daniel. Or if Daniel tried to rest in it, he could reverse it and then make Daniel carry his weight and kind of wear on Daniel. Because the biggest thing that was working against Daniel was the fact that he wasn't able to fight at pace for the entirety of the fight. If Daniel could have stayed at a certain pace the rest of the fight, he would have won it. Same thing in the second fight. He would have won that fight. But the fact of the matter is he's no longer the king of the grind. He can't set a pace and maintain it. And he sure as hell can't set a pace and, and build on it. So he needs those rest spots. He needs those spots where he knows he can dominate. And Stipe took that away when he essentially neutralized that clinch. So there's a couple of different things that I want to talk about there in reference to how both fighters... Uh, changed a little bit. What did you think about Stipe Miocic's movement throughout the fight on Saturday? Because whenever he stopped moving, and that's something that 
looking back, I noticed that he did a lot in the first in, in the second fight specifically. But whenever he stopped moving, his corner would lose their shit, screaming and telling telling him to move, and he would go back to circling. What were your thoughts about that? And was that did that play a major part in how this fight played out? First of all, the, and, and I, had, I had a discussion with uh, one of our Twitter followers. His name is Dan. Um, we, me and him talked about this before the fight. For the purpose of this, this is a problem that Stipe and Daniel Cormier's camp has. But for the purpose of this question, we're going to address Stipe. His camp is very reactionary. It's like they have to see something work or have to see something not work. And then the next fight, they'll make an adjustment. They're not very good at making in-game adjustments in-fight adjustments, between-round adjustments. As, as we know, because it took Stipe five rounds to figure I need to hit Daniel to the body, and his camp didn't even figure that. Stipe just figured, hey, it's there, might as well hit it. That's a key example. What the footwork thing is, in the first fight, Stipe did not maintain the range. He got into that clinch. He got blasted. In the second fight, he wasn't moving his feet. He wasn't on his toes. He wasn't on, moving his feet. He wasn't circling. He wasn't angling out or angling in. He was just standing in front of Daniel, engaging in a firefight that he was losing. Because Stipe, for as athletic as he is for a big man, he's, he's slow, and he has a hard time with speed. And Daniel Cormier is probably one of, even at this age, is still one of the fastest heavyweights out there, probably for a round and a half. So the reason they didn't want him to move his feet is because they know Stipe's defense isn't great, which is also partly their fault. He doesn't focus on a lot. He, uses, he, lends, he depends on his length and his own offense to kind of, kind of hold guys off. So it, it protects him defensively. And secondly... And, and excuse me, his length, and that that's a bad thing to do against most heavyweights. That's fine because they reach with shots. They're not very fast. He's got quicker feet. They're not very technical, so they can't get to. They can't athletically beat him to spots, and technically they they can't create the openings they need to get to him. Daniel can't create the openings either, but Daniel was so fast that he gets right to where he needs to be on Steve A. And Steve A can't scare him off with power because every if they're throwing blow for blow, he may be able to hit Daniel cleaner, but Daniel's hitting him. Three shots for every one one Stipe gets to him. Neither one of them is great at defense, but if you got faster hands, you're going to get to the target faster. So they want him to move this move his feet because if Daniel starts pouring up offense, he's either going to get backed up to the cage, which is small cage, and get overwhelmed, or even if he can stay at center cage, he's just going to be taking shot after shot after shot. And even though Stipe is fairly durable, in multiple multiple fights they've had, three fights they've had, he got knocked out once. Um, if I recall correctly, he's been dropped and he's been stunned multiple times. So their biggest thing is move your feet so that Daniel Daniel can't go in that straight line and blitz you. He can't just tee off on you because Daniel's footwork isn't good enough. He doesn't step around you. He doesn't step with you. He doesn't cut you off at angle. He basically sets up shop and just throws bombs and throws a blitz of strikes on you. So if you move your feet, Daniel's got to reset. When he resets, you walk him to the right hand, walk him to a check hook, spin around, jab right hand, spin around, basically keep him out of position and keep him from setting his feet to get maximum power and maximum speed. That's why they don't want him to do that. Because Stipe can't stand in front of him. It's too risky. Daniel's already proven he can knock him out. He's already proven he can hurt him. You need to take away the speed and take away his, what cardio he has by forcing him to readjust and to move. If you just let him stand in front of you, Daniel can do that all, all fight long. It's like that's the fight Daniel won. There? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I was talking on you. <laughs> what was it about this fight that you saw that Stipe Miocic, or not Stipe, Daniel Cormier's corner didn't address 
from a strategy standpoint and change in this bout. You saw Cormier talking about it a bit during a post-fight conference, post-fight interview where he was saying that in the first round, he caught Stipe overextending himself. That's why he was able to score that single leg takedown, but he didn't score any more takedowns for the rest of the fight. What adjustments did you think you saw that could have been made by Cormier's corner that weren't, that impacted how this fight played out? The thing I wanted to see from Cormier, and I only saw it in flashes, is I wanted Cormier to come out early and attack the legs and attack the body of Stipe. I know attacking the body is a risk because Stipe could counter him with a hook or hit him with an uppercut or maybe get to knees, even though Stipe's not a real big knee guy. But I wanted to see him attack the gas tank of, of Miocic. When you just headhunt, yeah, you can hurt a guy. Yeah, you can rock him. But, and you build up a trit of, da- a trit of attritional damage that way by racking up the punishment, but you're not really slowing him down past a certain point. And one of the biggest things that Stipe did was he attacked Daniel's body so that whatever cardio he had, whatever volume he could throw, would be minimized. And I would have liked to see Daniel do something similar. Stipe's got those long legs, kick the inside of the legs, kick the outside of the legs, take some of the spring off the steps, take away some of that mobility. And then on the, up, on the other side of that, also attack the body. You know, we know Stipe, Stipe was getting tired. Even, if, even though he was essentially controlling the fight, Stipe got tired in both fights. In the second fight, he was tired and pushed through. In the, th- in the last fight, towards the last couple round, the last round, last few minutes, uh, Daniel was hitting him with succession. Daniel was putting some pressure on him, and Stipe looked a little ragged. But Daniel did, never made a full commitment to taking those legs and taking the body away from him. That's what I would like to see. And the thing, another thing I would like to see if Daniel used level changes, not for the actual takedown, but just level changes on his shots, change level, use the body-head combination instead of going for the, body, the head all the time because when you miss headshots and you're throwing hard, you're wasting a lot of energy. You're wearing yourself down. And then also, when, every time he's missing, he's getting countered by Stipe. So he's not just exhausting himself, he's taking punishment. I would like him to see go low, go high, go high, go low. That way, you're attacking multiple areas on the body. It makes it harder to defend because he doesn't know if you're going to the body or you go into the head. Also, it helps you find a rhythm for your headshots because the body's always there. If nothing else, you can always touch the body. And secondly, defensively, it protects you because if you're going up and down, you attack the head, he swings, you go under, body, body, come over top for the head. It essentially makes you more defensively sound, and it makes him have to holster his shots a little bit because he doesn't know if you're going to be there when he returns fire. And if he misses and exposes himself, those ribs are getting roasted or that jaw is going to be exposed. But Daniel Cormier's team seemingly didn't drill that enough because I didn't see a whole lot of it from the word go. I don't mean he didn't do it in the fight. I would like to see him do that from the word go. Because once you get the level changes going, are you dropping levels to go for the body shot? Or is now the time when you drop levels and you go, and go for the takedown? There's different things you can do to set the takedowns up. There's different things you can do to set the clinches up. And Daniel seemed to have the most unimaginative ways of getting to the clinch and the most unimaginative ways of getting takedowns. They were high... They were higher, higher in effort, high in energy, and basically didn't get him much results when he did get to him. So they showed the things that I would have liked to see. They didn't show enough of them, and they didn't, they didn't show him from the beginning of the fight. He needed something to throw Stipe off. He would have come out kicking the legs, going to the body, faking high, going to the body, faking high, going to the body, faking high, kick to the legs, kick to the legs, kick to the legs, go to the body, kick to the legs, headshot. He would have, it would have thrown. Stipe off. Stipe expected Daniel to come out fast. He expected the speed. He expected the physicality. He expected Daniel to go to the clinch. He did not expect Daniel to change levels because when Daniel started changing levels on him, he wasn't ready for it. When Daniel started committing to the body, 
Sibe didn't really have any consistent counters for it. When Daniel diffused on the kick to the legs, Sibe wasn't punishing him for it because he wasn't expecting it. But with the things he did expect Daniel to do, he had an answer for it. He, he had an answer for the volume. He had an answer for the takedowns. He had an answer for the clinch when he tried to rest or when he tried to, to land offense consistently from there. He had answers for that. When he did the other things, Sipe did not have answers for them. And I would like to see him do them a whole hell of a lot more to kind of save his energy and put himself in a position where he'd have enough where he could make a big push late from third round on instead of just trying to hang on and, and navigate things from the third round on. What did your scorecards look like at the end of this fight? Um, I wouldn't say I thought Daniel, I thought all the fight, the rounds were pretty close except for the third round when he got the knockdown. That was kind of a clear round. Um, maybe the third or fourth. I, I thought it was like three rounds or two, maybe four rounds of one. No, I'll take the back. Three, three, three rounds or two. And, and most of the rounds could have gone either way. When Daniel got dropped in that third round, I think he had that third round. And I think if he would have won that round, he would have won the fight. That knockdown, not just one, the round, it essentially won him to set that fourth round because Daniel was trying to uh, navigate and clear his head that whole time. He couldn't really put meaningful offense together and he couldn't impose his will because he was just trying to not get knocked out at that point. Yeah, I was kind of looking at it the same way. I had it three rounds or two at the end of the day as well. Um, the last question in reference to Sipe, what is next for him? Should we clear off the calendar for this, this John Jones fight and hope and pray that the MMA gods give us this bout, or are we going Francis Ngannou? I think Ngannou's going to get, first of all, Sipe needs to give thanks to Daniel Cormier. I know he had problems with Daniel putting the fight off and talking about Brock Lesnar and all that stuff, but Daniel Cormier has done more for Stipe's Q rating and more for Stipe's name brand and more to make Stipe a uh, a a baby face, I guess, in the wrestling sense. Yeah, he, he's, yeah, he's helped him a lot. So he's made him a lot of money. He's essentially helped him, even when he beat him, he helped him because he showed a vulnerability. Stipe had to come back and win the title. This has actually been one of the few heavyweight title fights that have been greatly anticipated. Every single one of their fights was greatly anticipated and had a lot of interest from fans. They had a lot of interest for hardcore. So he, he, did, a, he did him a favor. Regardless, regardless of what Stipe says, he did him a favor. And I don't know who else Stipe fights outside of John Jones who will get this kind of interest and generate this kind of money. Uh, Ngannou's not going to do it. And I think Jones is the best ticket, but I, he's going to have to get through Ngannou first. I don't think he's going to get Jones right away. If Jones chooses to move up, I don't think Jones is going to fight him for at least at least another year. It's going to be Ngannou three, five months from now, and then Jones maybe four or five months after that. And if Jones right. gets him, Jones is, Jones, is, Jones is picking his spot because as good as Steve is, I saw, I saw some slippage. I saw some things to be concerned about. I'm not saying from Jones specifically, but as a fighter. And if I'm Jones, I'm, I'm taking this in, in, into my assessment, and I'm figuring if I wait another fight, maybe another year, I think Steve is going to be ready to be taken. And I think that's what Jones is thinking. See, and I was thinking that I was thinking based off of what John Jones was tweeting out that day that he does see some advantages that he could um, take into account. And what is interesting about that is a lot of the initial bookers had Jones as the have Jones as the favorite so far um, coming into the fight. So I think that that, that would be an, an interesting bout uh, to make. What? He, he's taken a Stipe's taken a lot of punishment in these last three fights. Stipe has taken a lot of punishment, a lot True. of punishment. 
you know, and 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 Jones is taking some, but he has been taking heavy punches. He's had a long break, and I think he's been planning this for a while. And he's been systematically going through everything, trying to figure out when's his best time for him to strike. Because he's not a stupid fighter. You can say he's not as technical, he's not as great as you think he is. He's not stupid. Every every fight he is, impressive or not, it's very high IQ. And I, I think he's he's got a plan. And if Stipe gets through Ngannou, um, I think he goes for him. And while Stipe probably is a better fighter at this stage, um, you take that kind of damage, this this kind of trilogy takes something out of you. And if Stipe's not the same guy, I think Jones can beat him. Good thoughts there, sir. Let me ask you about Daniel Cormier. The conversation back and forth is what is his legacy? What is his legacy? What is his legacy? What is his legacy in mixed martial arts now? Uh, he's the runner-up. As far as UFC heavyweight, even though he, he's probably the runner-up, he beat the best guy, but he also lost to him twice and lost to him in a more, I guess, more or less more dominating fashion each time. At light heavyweight, he was the runner-up. He beat everybody except Jones. He's one of the guys who pushed Jones the hardest, but he's never able to consistently beat the man when he, when he needed to beat the man. Um, one thing I will say, the question I've been asking on our, our Twitter pages is, is essentially, when are we going to have the discussion about how AKA shortchanged Daniel Cormier by having him move down to light heavyweight instead of staying at heavyweight so they could protect Kane Velasquez? Because we saw what a athletically faded and condition, and as far as his cardio, a faded older Daniel Cormier did against a guy who was essentially in his prime in Stipe, essentially in his prime. He was a tough fight for him, and he's not the athlete or not the conditioned athlete he used to be. If Daniel never had to drop heavyweight, drop from heavyweight, I think Daniel Cormier may have been a champion early and may have been considered one of the most dominant champions in the heavyweight division. And he, they did that to make sure that Kane got his shots and had an opportunity to compete for the title. And it's great for Daniel. He became a champion. But I don't, I don't, I don't know who I would have picked to beat him at heavyweight at that stage it, it, in, the, in his physical prime when he could go all day and he was two to three times faster than anybody else in the division. And he could take the best shots from anybody. Yeah, looking back, I know there's going to be a lot of questions about um... – what 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 could have been if Kenny Velasquez wasn't a part of AKA? And I think that's going to be an interesting question. And I wonder how they handle that going forward in the future. Do they... It's interesting because also at UFC 245, we saw Marishab Divalishvili have an excellent outing against John Dobson. And he's fighting at 135 as well. And in his corner is Aljamain Sterling, who is should be considered the next title challenger for 135. And I'm watching that fight, and I'm thinking to myself, how do they have that conversation about when it's time for DeVaris really to begin calling out for his shot? Because he looks like someone that would give anybody trouble in that weight class right now, regardless of what their rankings are. But his teammate is basically sitting there as the next uh, guy up for the for the belt. So I wonder how teams are going to, or how they've had and how they will continue to have these conversations. Because I think we're in a, we're in a different era than we were back in the early days of AK, like when John Fitch and Josh Koscheck were there, early days of, 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 of Velasquez and Cormier. I think we're in a different time where people got to start having those conversations much differently and where you will see teammates fight each other. Because also on his card, Jared, Jared, Jared Rosenstruck knocked out his teammate in JDS. So I think we're handling that much different now than we were back then. 
Well, I just think the nature of it, uh, from what I understand, and King Velasquez played such a big part for Daniel, and he did so much for him. They developed a bond. I think it's a little bit different than just being teammates and guys who are cool. And when you're guys who really could be considered family, like when you know somebody's family, y'all are super tight, and that person has helped you get your career off the ground and kind of helped finance you and push you and help develop you. It's a little bit different. But yeah, at this stage, with the money being involved and the opportunities being so few there are, you have to be prepared to do that if you want to proceed. Because either you're going to end up moving, losing opportunities, or they're just going to have to end up cutting you if you're making making it that much of an issue. I can't afford to have you on our roster when you're refusing to take fights and holding up divisions. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that there. Uh, let's move on and see what else happened. Marlon Vera defeats Sean O'Malley via stoppage due to strikes, but the conversation is widely circulating around O'Malley's leg injury in which he couldn't take a step forward. He falls down. Vera hops into his guard, lands a nasty elbow that basically sets up the finish. What were your thoughts about this sequence when you first saw it? Well, I was thinking, I didn't know if it came off a leg check or if it came off of they're attacking the legs. One concern that a lot of people had for uh, O'Malley, and one, one I thought about was that O'Malley, for the most part, hasn't fought anybody who's, who's been dedicated to kicking his legs or even attacked his, attacked his legs. For the most part, guys who face have been very defensive in how they fight him. In fact, they're not, like, they, they won't lead. They don't want to throw kicks. They don't want to try to establish a jab. They don't want to pressure him because they're fearful. They're fearful of being countered. It's supposed to be encountered because he's got very quick hands. He's a very sharp striker. So they try to stay out of range and, and catch him coming in, maybe catch him with a counter or, or catch him with something big instead of really going about the process of chopping him down, backing him up, and breaking him down. Um, Vera was essentially pressuring and putting him on his back foot. And usually um, O'Malley likes to back up and draw you in. But there's interesting difference when you're choosing to back up and a guy is backing you up. And, and what I saw was Vera backing up. And Vera attacked the leg. And O'Malley, I can't really remember too many times O'Malley's been kicked to the legs or really faced a guy who's an active kicker at all. And it's, it's an area that he, we haven't seen tested from his opponent. And now he, and he was tested. And in his first test that he had, he essentially failed. You know, Whether it was an injury or not, the injury came off of either a check or a kick which means it wasn't a freak injury. It was something that was a result of what his opponent was doing. Same thing when uh, Tyrone Woodley messed up uh, Carlos Condit's leg when he leg kicked him. So we can't just say it's an injury. Injuries are part of the game. Injuries that come off the result of a striker or submission are especially part of the game. We can't say it's a fluke because um, we haven't seen him get his legs kicked a lot. And the first time he gets his legs kicked a lot, he's physically impaired. So maybe that's a strategy that more people need to look into moving forward. Let me ask this about uh, Sean O'Malley. This is something that caught my eye as soon as he had the injury and it was clear that he was hurt. Are we dealing with a fighter who maybe, I don't want to use the term brittle, but his body, we see it across sports all the time where an athlete, a, a star athlete, body begins to fail them. We saw with Derek, Derek Rose in the NBA, for example, or even maybe a Bo Jackson in the NFL. Guys who were hurt in such a way that cut into the prime of their career. Because I remember he had that bad back injury that caused him to almost lose 
who was he? I can't remember who he was fighting. Maybe it was Sukunta that he was fighting yeah. against, but he had that very bad back injury. And then he was out for almost a year before the uh, marijuana test failure that he had. Is are we are we running into that situation with with uh, uh, Sean O'Malley? Is that a big uh, t- situation that we may see coming? Well, you have to wonder. I mean, because he's a young guy, and you haven't seen him in a lot of fights. He's been forced to take punishment. We don't really know how much punishment he can take because most of his fights have been ended fairly quickly. Or there have been fights he's been in firm control of. So he he really might be fragile, you know. And the, the toughest matchups he's had as far as guys being youthful and being able to kind of navigate what he's what he's done or his offensive athletic abilities, he hasn't looked great. He fought Terry and Ware. Even though he got injured, he gassed badly, really badly, and he just powered through late. Against Sukmentoff, he got injured. It only because he had, he had hurt Sukmentoff so badly, that guy couldn't capitalize off the injury. And against Vera, he got hurt. And unlike Sukhantov, Vera pressed the issue. He went for the kill when he saw him hurt. He was willing to risk getting knocked out of finish to get the win, and he did. So in his three biggest matchups, you saw various stages of physical deterioration or physical struggle, either an exhaustion, an actual injury, or in this case now, another injury. And you have to, like you said, you have to wonder about this now because he's a young guy. It's not a guy who's been doing this for 20 and 15 and 18 years and been in tons of wars and his body's breaking down. This is a guy who's pretty much, who's 90% of his fights have been one-way traffic. And he's still getting injured. He's still slowing down. He's still having to take extended periods of time off to recover from things. It might be, it might just be he's brittle. It could be his body type. It might just be he's susceptible to certain attacks. I don't know which one it is, but you have to ask that question now. Because you got guys who are 10-year veterans who don't, who haven't had this many serious injuries in their career, and then you have Sean O'Malley, who really, I mean, what, he's had three or four fights since the Superman top fight? So it's like a year and a half, two years, and already he's injured and going to be out of commission again for a extended period of time? You know, that, that's a concern if you're the UFC putting big money into this guy. That should, it might be a concern for a guy who, who the opposition only is going to get tougher from here on out. You can't give him any more soft touches. You can't give him any more showcase fights. The division he's in, and the way he talks, and the money he demands, the attention he demands, he's going to be facing more increasingly durable and more increasingly physically punishing fighters moving forward. So, how do you hide him? What do you What do you do with these guys next? Do you run this fight right back and allow and kind of build it up based around that, or do you allow Vera to kind of go off and, and maybe pick up some wins? And while we take a, we, while we take the time to reassess and reevaluate what we are doing with uh, Sean O'Malley. Um, well, first of all, I think there needs to be a reevaluation. I've said this before, and everybody kept calling me a hater. I said he 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 hasn't beaten anybody. Subintal is tough, but he's not an established ranked fighter. Eddie Wineland was established in rank like five years ago. Eddie Eddie Wineland's not a killer anymore. Tarion Ware is some great fighter. The guys he's been beating are tough guys, some guys have a name, some are experienced, but they're not in their prime and they're not at their most dangerous right now. He's beating up on guys who are the lower end of the top 15, top 20, and he's doing so impressively. That's great, he's doing what he's supposed to do, but people are giving him world elite credit for, for basically doing a city-wide, a city-level job. And while you, I see the athleticism, I see the sharpness, I see the fluidity, I see the creativity, 
uh, O'Malley isn't the puncher or the striker as far as power that everybody thinks he is. We still have questions about his cardio. We still have questions about his physicality. And none of, none of that has been challenged yet. So I think they need to – I think he needs to take an extended time off of the injury, get it 100%, then take some more extended time off to really look at his game, look at the potential fights he has to fight in this division, and start being very meticulous and careful in how he's going to approach these fights. Because now that it's shown that you might be a little brittle or you can't take the damage that you just you put out, guys, aren't, guys are going to be willing to risk getting knocked out to get to you because they don't think you can take it. And if he doesn't have very specific technical answers for the pressure, for the volume, for the leg kicks, for the checks, he's going to end up in this situation again. And he hasn't shown that he's good with pressure. He hasn't shown that he's good with volume. When he can't put a guy away quickly, his defense isn't great, his offensive output isn't great, and his power isn't great. So there's real-life holes that we've been talking about on this show for two or three years that have finally gotten – that are that maybe haven't quite gotten exposed – but we're there for anybody who's willing to, to look, open the book, not just look at the book cover, but look, open the book and see what it's about. So I think he needs to take some time off, get the injury straight, and take some time off and really think about how he's going to approach the next couple of years of his, of his career because the questions are out there and people aren't going to be scared of him anymore. Not saying they were, but it, that he was banking on that intimidation that doesn't exist anymore. When you get finished like that and it looks like it almost looks like you just got knocked out with the first clean shot you took to the jaw on the ground, that fear ain't there anymore, man. That fear ain't there anymore. And, and without that, I don't know how far he goes when he's facing people who, who aren't going to be afraid to come at him. Good stuff, man. I can see that breakdown there. Um, what else stood out to you on Saturday? Uh, I, 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 For me, three things stood out, and I want you to kind of pick out some things for yourself as well. Daniel Pineda's performance six years after when he was cut from the UFC. He looked fantastic. He came out there. He stopped Herbert Burns. Burns was having issues with the weight cut and was clearly gassed at various moments, but Pineda was not playing that. Got got the crucifix, was willing to go jujitsu versus jujitsu with them in some spurts in the MMA basics and got a big win there. Um, Vince Pichel's win over um, Mayhem Miller. I think this was solid. I liked how P- uh, Pichel, he took that first round. He, know he, he knew he had lost that first round, and he came out there and turned things around. And not only, again, same thing as, as Pineda, but he beats Miller in his own game. Even took his back at the end of the fight there, so I think that, that's fantastic. And then the third thing that stood out to me was the opening fight between Kai Kamaka and Tony Kelly. Those two guys went at it. I wrote about this as well in the Biden numbers piece, which you need to go to go to check out on the MMA ratings.net website. If you looked at the way the fight started and the adjustments that Tony Kelly made from a distance management standpoint to put get himself out of danger, but also put Kamaka in a dangerous spots, this was an excellent um, strategic battle. And I think it's the type of fight that fans need to see when a fight card opens, because it does make you interested in seeing the rest of the night. But for you, Shawan, uh, what stood out for you uh, from UFC 252? Um, well, the, I had to talk about the DeSantis fight. It was, it was really, it wasn't shocking, but once again, it was very, it was very sobering to see how much your initial camp or how much that initial fundamental or lack of fundamental development from a camp can hinder you 
Junior DeSantos is a guy who essentially fights the same way he fought six years ago, ten years ago, whenever he came to the UFC. Only difference is now that Chin isn't 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 impenetrable, and his athleticism is taken one to two steps, if not three steps back. And now all the things he could do that he got away with, he can't get away with, and he gets punished for each and every one of them. And it's just a matter of our guys scared of his reputation enough let him get away with it because when they're not they they just they punish him and they and they put him out and it's all because his initial camp essentially built his style purely based on his athleticism and his durability they didn't develop defense they didn't develop proper footwork they didn't develop setups they didn't develop good clean striking they just said here's a functional skill set you're big you're tough you're fast you hit hard that'll be enough and it was enough as long as he was he was at his peak as soon as he fell off his peak he started getting blown up and the second thing it brought up to me is that having good management matters because when he lost to Cain Velasquez of that second fight, there was no way in hell they should have made a third fight with him. Cain Velasquez took probably 40% of his world, the world-class ability that Junior DeSantis had and beat that out of him. And in the third fight, he beat another 25% out of him. And he was never the same after those fights, and he was never really a truly elite-level world-class heavyweight after those fights either. He just looked different. And it, it's... For future, for young fighters, make sure you are getting a good foundation. Make sure your coaches are earning their money and not riding off your natural talents. Because if they're riding on your natural talents, those will get burned out quickly when you get to the top level. And then you'll have nothing else to fall back on. You'll go from somebody who loses close fights to world-class opposition to a guy who's getting knocked out and beat up by anybody who's even even touching the top 15 or top 25. That's how bad it will get. So this... It was just a, a story that is something, an example of what young fighters need to not do, what young fighters need to pay attention to in their own development. Take control of your own development, because if you don't, you end up like Junior DeSantos, who has gotten a little bit better, but he's so far gone that, that he, can't, he has no room for error. And when you have no room for error, you can't possibly win a fight. Um, his opponent, uh, he won, but his... his I don't know if they're trained in the right. I don't know if he's just stubborn or he doesn't listen, but that fight could have been over in round one, and it wasn't because he just couldn't figure out that Junior DeSantis was doing the same thing he's been doing for the past 10 years. And as soon as he figured that out, the fight was over. And I have no idea what he didn't figure that out in the first round, rather than half, but it's another discussion. Um, and then uh, the second, the last thing I want to talk about is Felice Herrick and, uh, and Verna Jandaroba. That was impressive. Her uh, jujitsu, her top control, her her willing, her ability to get in position to finish so impressively was, I mean that that was the lead level grappling, and she's surely a dark horse in the division. I was expecting a little bit more from Phyllis Herrick. She's a veteran. She has a decent enough skill set, but it seemed like she had never seen her opponent fight and decided to give her opponent the easiest path to victory in the history of mixed martial arts. I, I didn't see her even approach it like. I, whatever she had planned, it was it wasn't a good one, and I, I was just I felt bad for her to come back after that long a fight, long a time off, and to basically be able to offer nothing, and a fairly big card with a lot of people watching it had to be pretty uh, humbling and pretty frustrating for her. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it for me as far as the, the event. Good, good. So we can then move on and talk about some upcoming action. We're not going to talk about this card too much because there isn't really anything that stands out to me about this uh, UFC on ESPN 15. We have the main event where Frankie Eggers fighting Pedro Munoz. And I've 
as I was working on the agenda for tonight's show, I was thinking about this fight itself a little bit because, in my opinion, Munoz has a lot to lose here, but very little to gain. He's sitting in the, in the number five position. He's fighting a former lightweight champion, a former featherweight title contender, a future Hall of Famer. You know, we know we know who Frankie Edgar is, but we also know that he's 36 years of age. He has lost four of his last five, I believe, or three of his last four, one of those two. And I feel like he's being inserted into the bantamweight title picture at a time in his career where his, his value is for the up-and-coming fighters to make their name off of as opposed to him jumping somebody and getting into the title picture. He's not going to get the Jose Aldo treatment. He can't afford to come in here, lose a fight, and then end up in the in the in the title fight the next fight out. That's not going to happen for him. Um but I think that if let's say the next two guys, the next two Bantam weights to fight him and beat him, let's say that that, that happens, that's more value for them than it is for him. I think he's much further off from the title picture than the other way around. What are your thoughts about that, Sean? Yeah, um, Edgar's one in his last four. He's one in four in his last four. I mean, excuse me, one in three in his last four. And he's had, in between the, the losses, he's had two He's had two knockout losses. Um, I guess they're essentially using him as a showcase fight, isn't they? I mean, they're giving him a chance to rejuvenate his career. He probably could have been a band of weight for a long time ago, a long time ago, and they didn't have the weight division. And so... He put he, he put his body through a necessary strain and punishment, fighting much bigger guys at 55 and fighting slightly bigger guys at a at a featherweight. Now he's going down to bantamweight. Um, they're just I mean, I want to say it's risky for Pedro, but to be quite honest, it's a name fight that's going to get him attention and help him increase his brand and, and give him some kind of malarkey claim in a title shot. It won't be legitimate, but at least he'll have a name on his on his ledger and, and a fairly popular one. It's really a low-risk fight. If, if Frankie somehow beats him, yeah, it's devastating. But if anybody beats him at this time, it's devastating. But if he loses now, it's to a Hall of Fame, multiple title challenger, um, lightweight champion. There's a lot of things you can do to spin it to make it seem less than what it actually is. If he wins it, it's a huge boost as far as his Q rating. And it gives him, if he does it in an impressive enough fashion, it gives him kind of a springboard that might take him a fight or two outside of the uh, outside of the title fight. Um, I just think it's a really bad for Frankie when he moved to featherweight. He had issues with the speed. He wasn't much faster than the guys there. And now he's older and he's getting outspeeded by featherweights and he's dropping down another weight class where our guys who are in their prime athletic. So I can only see the speed advantage becoming more of a problem. And even though his defense has improved, he's not very durable anymore. He's still not a big puncher. He's not a physical presence in any weight class he's been in. He hasn't really bullied anybody at this in the last couple of years, and I can't see it happening now. Um, it just seems like it's a, a, a fight to, to give um, Pedro a step up and a chance to to increase his Q rating and get the fans behind him. Once again, it's a chance for Frankie, but it, it's it's really not the kind of fight you'd like to see him at in any weight class. It's it's kind of a bad matchup given what he's shown in the past past three or four years of fighting. How do you think this fight plays out? Who do you think wins? 
Uh, it just it's almost impossible for me to pick Frankie. I just I don't know that he's durable enough anymore. Pedro's a big, strong guy, and he's good. At, he's a good finisher on the ground. It, it seems like this fight is just made for Frankie to lose. You know, I I have a hard time imagining. There's ways he can win it, but I have a hard time imagining him pulling him executing these ways at this point in his career. I can agree with that. Um, I you know I used to train with those guys up in Jersey, as I've, I've as I've said before in the past. I think he is someone who definitely has done way way too much in this sport. I mean, he's continued. He's excelled well beyond what people thought he should have done. I remember when they were um, they were trying they they didn't have the bantamweight division and they were trying to push him to drop down to 135 so they could build the bantamweight division around him and he refused to do so because he wanted to prove that he could hang at 155 and he did that for an exceptional period of time. Um, but I wonder how much more he can take, man. The Brian Ortega knockout was stunning. The Korean zombie one was even more stunning than that. And he just couldn't keep pace with Max Holloway as well. So I wonder just how much longer he's going to keep keep doing this. He has, I think he, I think he has two gyms set up now in Jersey. I know he does a lot of coaching and stuff like that as well too. So I wonder what's next for him and, and how that plays out. But I don't think he can be doing this too much longer. Well, he's got a big enough name where he can continue. And there and against some lesser guys, his experience will carry him through. It's just that, like I said, a big a lot of his advantage has been cardio and speed. At Featherweight, he wasn't outspeeding people. You saw him getting hit more and saw him getting tired because guys could keep up with him. At Bantamweight, that's not going to get that much better. And there's and it, it with his name and the money he has and the goals he has, they can't build him up slow. They can't risk him getting knocked out by a young guy. They're going to put him in with the guy who's in the title talks, who, whether a contender or fringe contender, and a guy who's dangerous. That's the only way he's going to get these opportunities. And I just don't know that physically he's at a spot where he can he, he can beat these kind of guys. Even if he beats Pedro, who's he who's he going to be next? I mean, he can't fight Sterling. They're they're somehow connected. Um, I mean, do I think he beat he can't? I mean, two of the guys in division actually connected to his camp. He can't fight. He can't fight Marais. He, he actually Marais is a trainer anymore. I don't think oh, he okay. trains with. Those guys in I don't think that they would still fight because actually, Morais is fighting. A, well, he was supposed to fight Cody Garbrandt next, but Cody Garbrandt moved down to fight one at one twenty five. But um, yeah, they've made some adjustments there. I don't think that um, they're on. The, uh, they're not. They're not a part of the same team any longer. I should say. Hmm. But I still don't think okay. that, that that they will take that fight. Yeah, I don't know they would, and it's a bad matchup for him. I mean, there's there's just a lot of bad matches where he can, but like I said, he, there's Sterling. He can't fight him. And imagine if he beats Pedro and they give him a title fight, and Sterling's supposed to. I mean, that that causes all sorts of problems in a camp. Um, like I said, I, I just don't think it's a good move, and, and I don't think there's a lot of good matches for him in this division, whether he wins or not. Saturday, I, I just don't think there are. Is there anything else that stands out for you on this card? Um, I'm interested to see how much longer um, Ovain St. Preux can stay in the uh, in the UFC. It seems like they're trying to get him out of there. He's been getting some really tough matchups, given the t- technical flaws he has in his game. So um, he's been here for a really long time. He's been probably a contender for the title for the majority of his time here. It's interesting to see how long he can maintain his spot or does he end up getting run out of the UFC in the next year or two? 
Anything else stand out for you on Saturday's card? Mm, seeing the strawweight fight, but um, I don't really think it's a good matchup. In a way, she's, she's a really good fighter, really good athletic talent, really skilled fighter. And it seems like they got gave her a showcase fight to kind of whet the appetites of the fans and show that she's a cut above the rest of the girls in the strawweight division. It's interesting for that point, but I don't know that it's an interesting matchup in and of itself. It seems like it's a showcase matchup, and I'm never super hyped about showcase matchups because they're there just essentially make one person look good. True, I feel you there. Um, that's, I wanted to ask you a question, man. I'm hearing a lot, and, and I need your help on this because I don't follow boxing as closely as I do everything else, but I'm hearing a lot about a lot of big-name boxing events being scheduled. What are you looking forward to, and what should I be watching where? Um, the, the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is the Teofimo Lopez fight with Lomachenko. That, you got a lot of background noise, man. Yeah, the Teofimo, the Lopez fight and Lomachenko fight. Lomachenko's considered right now to be the pound-for-pound pound best guy or number two in the division. And, um, excuse me, number two in pound-for-pound. Pound. And this is going to be his biggest matchup. He's fighting above his natural weight. He's fighting a guy who's younger, bigger, stronger, and is a knockout, knockout boxer knockout puncher, but in this case, on the opposite end, this guy who's young enough to become a guy is facing the most experienced, one of the most decorated amateur fighters in history, one of the best technical fighters in history, and one of the guys who's, I mean, he won a world title fight in his uh, second or third fight ever, so he's facing essentially one of the best boxers of all time, and it's going to be a matter of, is it the technical genius of Lomachenko, or has moving up in weight and fighting in a bigger weight class than he's natu- naturally been at, does that catch up to him when he faces an athletic dynamo who's young, durable, and has power? But that, that's probably the biggest matchup that's going to be happening in, in the next couple months as far as quality of fight and the, the potential it has to up in the boxing community. Where should I, where can I watch this? Uh, should be on ESPN. I thought they were going to do pay-per-view, but I think they're just going to do it on the ESPN. True, true. All right, sir. Um, next question I have for you. This is more along our realm, much easier to ask. We saw that the next fight that was announced for Brian Ortega and Kareem Zabi is scheduled. We also had another big fight announcement in Derek Reyes, Dominic Reyes, excuse me, versus um, Jan Blahovic. Let's talk about Ortega versus Korean Zombie first. My main question here, you know, I want to ask you, how do you see this fight going from an early preliminary thought? But my main question here is, when did Brian Ortega become the bad guy? Was it when he slapped that K-pop star? Or I, I can't remember if it was a K-pop star or just another guy that was hanging out with Korean Zombie. Or was it when he and I think Kane Velasquez were yelling um, sexual, I guess, homophobic slurs at Yair Rodriguez and um, Steven, what's the guy, Jeremy Stevens. When did Brian Ortega yeah. become such an asshole? Uh, I'm not sure if he is one or if he's just, he's just not reading the room correctly and, and, and kind of and, and kind of making the wrong decision. It, it's really hard for me to tell because I'm not there during these circumstances. And I don't even know if it's an asshole so much. It just looks like he's a guy who might be a bully and nobody really likes bullies, not professional fighters, not casual, not fan, not anybody. And it's, it's really weird how quickly it's turned on him. I remember at one point people were really excited about him. They thought he was a really good guy. He had 
commercials, and it seemed like he was a fan favorite and was going to be able to ride off that for a while. But ever since the, the Holloway fight and his impending, his, he's pretty much been inactive, and the only thing he's managed to do is upset people and turn people against them. It's like he doesn't have a fight, and so he decided to pick fights with, with people, and that's just not something you can ever really win when you're, when you're attacking the masses or you're attacking celebrities, not in the position that he's in. It's, it's, it's amazing he's, how, how quickly MMA and pretty much sports as a whole has turned on uh, Brian Ortega. It's, it's incredible how quickly that happened. And it's incredible that he, he, keeps on, he keeps on building on it. It's like he doesn't know how to stop. Like he just can't help himself. Is it like a situation where it's a young dude being a jerk and he just hasn't matured enough to realize that he's being a jerk? People are looking at him like, stop being a jerk? Man, I, I guess it could be that. But I mean, when you're a name guy in the UFC, and you're getting that kind of attention. You can't afford to make those kind of mistakes. Somebody on his team or somebody connected to him should have gotten him in order. I mean, that's all I can say. You, you're you're not allowed to make those kind of mistakes when you're in the position he's in. It's just it's just dumb stuff. It's just dumb, stupid mistakes. That's all I can say. True, true. Um, Schwan, let's take this yeah. time, man. Let everybody know what you're working on. Uh, recently, I I just finished and released my uh, article on Melinda May, the fighting strategies and styles of Melinda May from Agents of Shield. Released that right after the, fi- the final, which was Wednesday. And uh, I want to thank everybody for all the support it's gotten. It's got like a hundred retweets and like eight hundred and fourteen likes. So it's gotten a very very good response on um, social media. I even had the actress; um, she actually tweeted back and spoke up. For her choreograph, her choreography team and her stunt team. Did and she really? Yeah, she she actually uh, Ming Na Wen. She actually re- she actually retweeted the article, shared it, and liked it, and and Shut replied up. to yeah, it. She no, she asked Michael. He sent it to me. I was like, it'd be really cool if she What's did. What's her name? Oh, Ming what? Uh, Ming Na Wen. Found it. Okay, hold on. Let me see. I don't, I ain't believe in you. Hold on. Let me see. If you guys yeah, you... see, I told y'all folks, Shwan be coming on the show, telling. All types of foolishness. You just got getting away with it. You just got to talk to Michael. He he showed it to Shit, me. I right. did. Yep. Yeah, I, I was like, it'd be cool if she, you know, just cool because I I admire the actress. I like the character she plays. She did a great job on it, and she did it. And it just people just keep. I mean, even now people are still retweeting and liking it. I I check in my ratings. It's got like a fifty rating, all ten. So I mean, fifty people rated. It's just a lot of people. I guess like the like the character. And they appreciated the uh, breakdown I gave that kind of tells the story of the character and tells, like I said, I always look at these characters and look at these fight scenes as if they're real life and death situations, real fights, and I break them down from that position. And I guess a lot of fans just appreciated it. So I want to thank everybody who shared it, everybody who liked it, everybody who read it, everybody who rated it. Thank you very much. It was a very pleasant surprise. I, I, didn't, I thought it would do well. I didn't think it would do this well. So, look at um, this. You motherfucker. Yeah, Mike, Michael actually directly messaged me. He's like, dude, do you see what kind of numbers you're doing? I'm like, what? So, uh, What's next? It, um, I'm going to be – I'm supposed to be doing the uh, Black Widow. That's what I'm, that's what I'm looking at. If I'm, gonna, I'm working on the, part, the piece for her. Um, so that'll be, enough, that'll be the second female character I've actually broken down. Uh, Melinda May was the first, and uh, Natasha Romanoff will be the second, and hopefully I'll get a good response for that as well. When are you gonna start doing the matchups though, man? That's what I, I, I gave you that idea. You haven't moved on it. When are you gonna start doing the matchups if so and so 
when we're gonna when, when you're gonna write about how it would go down if Black Widow and Melinda May stepped into the octagon together. Um, Give I'm the people gonna, what they want. I'm probably gonna do it after this this part. I'm gonna I want to do that, and then I want to also kind of go back and review some other fights. But I'm definitely gonna get into that. I just like I said, when you're doing these, when you have these pieces, people love these characters and they love the actresses representation of the characters. So you have to be very meticulous in how you present it because people take, I mean, like I said, Melinda May is not a real person. Steve Rogers is not a real person, but the people who like these characters and like the actors who played them take it very seriously. And if you misrepresent a technique or misrepresent how a fight would go or misrepresent that person's effectiveness as a fighter, there's, you got problems and I don't need them. So I want to make sure I get this done and give the proper respect to the actress the uh, person who created the the uh, character and the character itself, so that the people who are fans of it feel that I did justice to that person. And that's what I like the most about this last one. I heard about people saying very nice things about the Captain, Mar- Captain America, America piece, but to actually see people comment and say, thank you for giving me this plot, it gave me a better appreciation for what they did on the show, it gave me a better appreciation for the reality of the scenes and the techniques, it gave me a better appreciation for how much hard work this is because you break down fights and fighters on a regular basis, real fighters, and you've worked with them, and for you to give it this kind of attention to detail makes makes me feel better about my support of the show, my support of the fight scenes, and my support of the character. And that that really touched me. That that made me feel really good. That people felt that I did the service, the show, and the character justice. Good stuff, man. Well, congratulations on that. Much 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 respect for that. Getting that out there and getting that as much coverage as you um thought. Uh, as usual, you know, I'm covering more wrestling content, some MMA content mixed in here and there, but it is what it is. And wow. Okay. So I just saw that Dominic Reyes versus Jan Blachowicz has just been announced on Saturday, September 26th at UFC 253. This is now for the 205 pound title. Not even the oh, interim wow. title, the actual title. So that's that's wow. huge. Um, that's that's big. That's pretty huge. There's some breaking news on MMA ratings uh, podcast. So we're gonna close out on that note. As always, man. Thanks again for joining us. We will be back next week. I will be here this weekend because there's a lot of fucking pro wrestling to talk about uh, this week. A lot. So I will be here to talk about that. But with that in mind, I'm going to close out. Thank you again, Shawan, for having a Great episode. Congrats, congrats again on, this, on, success, on the success of that piece. And we'll be back here next week. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. You take it easy, and I'll see you next week, man.